other narratives in general. Old Pythagorean cult mentality. Wait, is this 21 Jump Street? That's what this book is? Gotta love a book that quotes Reagan. World, we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, really craving some fried bread about now. And I'm James Earl, unable to play hockey in Milan, Italy, because I'm still recovering from my 16th shoulder dislocation. Yeah. No, this was like, this was my book. It was hockey. It was shoulder injuries. I felt so connected to the protagonist. And your shoulder. Ah, yes. We're reading Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bully. That the main protagonist always does before every day is she asks for help from one of the seven grandfathers. So those are love, respect, honesty, humility, bravery, wisdom, or truth. And which one do you want to call to Mm. today at the beginning of our podcast? I'm torn between two. One is respect because in our last podcast, we have a bit of a delay and I was interrupting you a lot because I was unaware of you speaking until you started to speak. So I need to be more respectful there. I also want to pull wisdom from this novel because I feel like this is a a good novel for that kind of thing, like extracting wisdom from it. Well, I will let you know that because there was an internet delay, I was not aware of any disrespect as one of the benefits of (laughs) internet delays. And I'm coming down to wisdom as well. I feel like in the book, there's a lot of moments, especially the relationship with the elders in the book around... You know, how do you develop this sense of wisdom? And I just feel like that's a really good starting place for this book and this discussion. But in order to dive in, do you want to give our spoiler, spoiler, spoiler full summary? Right. This one is going to have spoilers, as all our podcasts do. And uh, this one, there's a lot of things to spoil. So if you haven't read the novel and spoilers matter to you, you may want to read the novel first and then come back to this. All right. Summary time. James, are you ready for the summary? Put one minute on the clock. Okay, I get a minute. That's good. Ready. You get to start in three, two, one, go. Our first person narrator is Donis Fontaine. She is notably not Donis Firekeeper because she's a person caught in between two different worlds. She's part of the indigenous community, um, but she's not part of the indigenous community because her father, who never accepted her as her daughter in his lifetime, she... Um, pretty early on in the novel, witnesses her best friend's murder. It's a suicide murder situation with a meth addict who was her boyfriend, and it's a murder-suicide. And then this book becomes a murder mystery novel, even though they know who did it. But it's, it's how is this meth getting into the community? Who's responsible for it? She also has to deal with the fact that her uncle died previous to the book, and she's trying to figure out that because she does not believe that he died of a meth overdose. She believes that something fishy was happening. Um, and she ends up falling in love. She becomes an undercover detective to help solve this murder. She falls in love with her co-undercover detective, and she solves the murder by the end. Yay! It's still... It was still not a very good one, but I got it in under a minute. No, you hit all the major plot points, all the most important things that happened in the book. I'm just going to start at the end of your summary because I clearly did not remember what this book was about. And when the undercover cop love interest, Jamie, she's like, I know that he's lying to me. I know what he's lying about. I literally thought she was going to be like, and it's because 
he's a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> because all the books we read. And all the, the books we read. The these are fantasy books. I'm like, yeah. oh, he's going to be some like, yeah. fantastical creature. And she's like, he's a cop. And I was like, wait, this is 21 Jump Street? That's right. what this the, book is? The reason he seems so much older and wiser than all the other people in her life is because he's a thousand years old. Exactly. And, <laughs> But no, he's he's just a cop. Yeah, no, he's just 22 or something. Okay, so this book starts off a little slow, and then all of a sudden that murder happens, and I feel like it's just a, a wild ride from there. I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was a really tight novel. All the guns went off by the end. It subverted some expectations of genre. It was just good. Like, all of them going off at the end, there's even, like, that... Avengers Endgame moment where it's like, on your left, and all the elders come out yeah. <laughs> to, like, the fairy with their cars, and they're like, we're going to take them all down. Oh, yeah. I love that scene where, where they, like, box in the car, and uh, yeah. yeah, the elders all come around and over south. <laughs> it. it was awesome. Yeah, there was love, sex, murder, meth. Meth, everything. What else do you need a book? Everything. I mean, it had it all for me. All right, so one theme that I picked out was... The idea of, of fixing things from the inside, like being able to look at the full picture and solving things without external help. Well, especially when you think about the legacy of the U.S. federal government on Indian land and Indian culture. There are basically like law enforcement officers, which highlighted my favorite quote of the book, scariest words ever spoken. I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help. Gotta love a book that quotes Reagan. <laughs> like Donis's insistence on and proving the ability of the community to root out their own evil mm-hmm. was really, really powerful. But at the same time, the author didn't let it sort of like stay put. That's like not a full solution, showing that there's also issues with the tribal council and the sort of justice that they're able to enact themselves in leaving like a lot of the interpersonal conflicts that had happened, especially her rape, be like unlegislated. That's something I noticed too, is that there's the sort of simple answer to this question, which is, you know, the indigenous communities should be left to solve their own issues and allowed to to do that on their own. But this is like a far more complicated topic than that. Like it's, there are no easy solutions to this. And I think this book was really good at dwelling in the complexity of those kinds of issues because in the end of the day, this is, you know, it's a globalized world. A lot of communities are going to interact with your community. A lot of relationships are going to impact your interpersonal relationships at a micro level. And this is true at a macro level, too. And so the idea that the detective is an indigenous man who's trying to work at that federal level to help um, indigenous communities have the resources to solve these kinds of problems, like, this is a messy issue. And I think the book let it be messy. Yeah. Well, especially when you think about, like, the main character being, you know, half indigenous and half not, mm-hmm. um, and being struck between those two worlds. And there's a lot of different scenes in the novel where they talk about, you know, how are, like, when are you fluent in the language? How do you define whether or not you're Indian or not? And one thing that's also is very hard about being American Indian is the fact that you can be enrolled in a tribe. Yeah. Like, there is a definition. Right. And I thought the way this book explored that issue was super interesting, too, because it went through all these different like forms of ontology of blood and knowing the stories and being recognized. And there are like official ways. And then you can have sort of letters of recommendation from elders. 
like knowledge is a part of it, but there's a physical component to it as well. Like it's just, it's a messy question, especially when there are benefits to it. Yeah, especially when it's not like you are immune from the disadvantages if you're not enrolled. In fact, you are more lost. And I think that's another thing that Donis and her best friend Lily, both who are not enrolled in tribes, have to struggle with in the beginning of the novel and then Donna's the entire time until um, she gets accepted by her tribe. They just don't fit by the letter of the law. They have almost like no home. Yeah. Because they're of two worlds. Right. And Donna's obviously has lots of different kinds of identity. Identity within the tribe is only one of them. There's her immediate family. There's her friend group. There's her hockey buds. You know, she has a, what looks like at the beginning of the novel, a tight relationship with Levi, her half brother. So she's got these things, but they're like all unofficial. Um, You know, she's like part of the hockey community, but she can't really play anymore. And it's a lot of half things. And I think the way that the book explored that issue of identity is really, she even denies what is an official committee going to tell me about my identity. But then when she gets that official recognition, there's a joy to it. But I think she's already abandoned needing it, letting it have power over her. So it, it ends up being a nice to have, but isn't something that she needed. Yeah, I think it is that hard thing of where are you defined by other people and where can you define yourself? And I think there are so many elements of the Indian legacy and also just in the novel itself of like Donna's being controlled by other people. And how does she take agency into her life? Like originally she like doesn't want to enroll. Yeah. Like she's like, I have until my ninth birthday, whatever. And especially because she has the privilege of being wealthy on her white side. Right. But at the same time, knowing that her grandmother is super racist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, that's also part of this idea that things can't be solved entirely within a community because communities are not isolated from the outside world. So like there's going to be external influence. And so the idea that she feels a part of this indigenous community, but she also feels a part of her family that includes a racist grandmother. And so like these things are necessarily going to act right. Like this is the social fabric of the world and there's no disentangling them entirely. Yeah. Obviously, like we had started this off last time talking about how I hate novels that are the blanks blank. Yeah. And of course, they have to like throw a lampshade on it because those titles are all terrible. Right. But I think in this like one instance, it's done obviously on purpose because she is a firekeeper's daughter. Her dad is a firekeeper. the original yeah. OG Levi firekeeper, but he never actually like claimed her officially except for on the back of a photograph. Yeah. That, that isn't revealed until after his death. Right. So the idea of her identity being contingent, right? Like the thing that you didn't, that that you take objection to is let the person be who they are. But this book plays with contingent identities. And so the idea that, you know, she is known as the firekeeper's daughter or the Fontaine's daughter. And that is part of the thing that she's struggling against. Mm -hmm. (laughs) makes this the exception that proves the rule for you. Right. Exactly. And I think there's the idea of how she has to like lift the sun every morning, like the like the mythical like firekeeper's daughter. And she's like, well, what if I'm just like tired? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, like that makes me want to think of like Encanto and Louisa and surface pressure and all of these <laughs> other great things that we've been having lately in media about that. They're naming it. They're naming this idea, especially that women do in order to maintain culture. And that is labor. It just It's a very interesting thing where it's like, it's a raw deal, like all that responsibility and you don't even get your own name. Yeah. yeah. To build more on the issue of solving problems with within a community and the impossibility or the ways in which it manifests, 
there's this interesting concept of a blanket party in the novel. At the end, as you mentioned, her rape is going to go unprosecuted, but it will go prosecuted in terms of a blanket party. Or at least that's the implication is that that will happen. I actually don't remember what happens to Grant. Yeah. Is he still around? Because David goes to like Sweden or something like that to play. Grant is just living in the house by himself and he watches old high school hockey games. Right. So he is he is subject to the blanket party justice. Uh, yeah, I think it is suggested that he's going to be subjected to that. But I still think that there's an open question of because he is not native and they are... Can they actually impart that justice onto him? Right. Like, what land does it take place on? The fact that she was, like, raped, but it was on Indian land is, like, why they can't be, like, prosecuted. Right. There's just a lot of messiness there. And especially, I think, the interesting thing of of the ceremony, there's a lot of moments of ceremony in the book, in the culture. Obviously, there's an element of firekeepers are the people who are, like, keeping the fires for all of these ceremonies. But at the very end, the one with the pansies and the overcoming of pain. And so much of the wisdom of the community is this shared pain and shared legacy. And how at the very end, Donis runs into like one of her like frenemies, Macy, and is like, you know, I'm so glad she wasn't at the ceremony because it's not something that I want to have imparted on her. And how earlier in the book, her aunt was like, I don't want you at a blanket party. Like, this right. is not something that you should want to be part of. Yeah, this is this is another thing I found really interesting in the novel that actually made me think differently about something that I, I think a lot about, actually, is knowledge that should be protected or knowledge that should be kept secret. Because I think, like, my default position is, like, Wikipedia, democratization of, uh, of knowledge. And this book showed very clear examples of... Knowledge that has been under attack actually in some ways needs to be kept secret because it needs to be protected. And so the idea of these, you know, children being kidnapped and taken away to these schools and not being allowed to speak their language and this like idea that some language is is under attack and in order to keep it safe and stable, it needs to be kept secret. It needs to be like siloed in these elders and needs to only be released at certain times. And so like some ceremonies and, you know, what you were just talking about is another element of this. Like, some ceremonies, it's actually best you don't have knowledge of it. And, like, that you can protect people from it, that it's protected from outside influence. So, yeah, this, like, old, like, Pythagorean cult kind of mentality of knowledge needs to be kept secret. I always thought as, like, no, that's not that's not a thing that anyone thinks anymore. But this made me think differently about it. I think I would phrase it not necessarily secret, but earned. And I think oftentimes we say like, oh, you like you, you earned that. It's like a positive thing. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it isn't necessarily positive. It's like there are lots of ways that you can earn this knowledge and this wisdom into the ceremony, but they're not all good. Right. And I think this book takes a, a really interesting way of dealing with this because there is sometimes the earning it is good. Like when she asks about the tiny people, she has to listen to this old guy talk for a long time. And like, that's her earning the story is like, she's got to sit there and learn it. And she enjoys that process. But it's still in that same idea of this knowledge needs to be earned. So sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes it's just 
her commitment to the community that that allows her to earn it. It takes that idea, puts it at the center, and then looks at it in a really complex way from like all these different angles and doesn't shy away from any of them. It's very good. And speaking of earning things, I think we should talk about her brother because her brother is a very interesting character and he's the one who actually like earns the firekeeper last name. Yeah, he also inherits the legendary status of his father in the hockey community. So it's not just the name, but it's also the reputation, the, the status that comes along with being Levi Firekeeper. And very much so like he's like the golden boy because mm-hmm. he is also like a hope for the Indian community of like this is a way that you can get out of here and you can be the same if not better than white people at least on the ice and that really almost like gross twist where it turns out that actually he's secretly been run by a white man the entire time and that he is the parasite that has been spreading the weird math in the community through the hockey pucks well i think a lot of it was yeah just the relationship between him and mike switching the coach obviously too the one thing that i will say about this book and then i'll go back into the question about levi is i could not i was like who is spreading the meth and in every single moment i was like oh it's got to be the coach because the coach has got that like bmw that makes no sense and then i was like oh it's got to be michael he's a piece of shit wait it's got to be levi because he's being really suspicious Mm -hmm. and like why did he want jamie to become her friend and then it just turns out everyone's in on it. Yeah, they were all... Everyone's dealing meth. You were all right all along. Oh, I thought it was super interesting the way they made... Because obviously, I expected Levi as well at some point. But then I loved how the book made me feel bad about that at one point. Where it was like, thinking mad about a love person. Like, he's fine. This isn't a thing. And I was like, oh, man. They got me. The only one that I felt bad about that was implicated was Levi's mother. Dana, who is Justice Firekeeper in the community. There's something like gross and like wicked stepmom about how she was characterized that made me really uncomfortable. It also feels a little bit gross to me because it was implied that like Donis's mother was actually OG Levi's true love. He would have picked her all along and he loved that scarf that she gave him and that basically like Levi Jr.'s mother plied OG Levi with alcohol so that he would have sex with her at the party. And it just, especially because both of those characters are native and Adonis's mother is not. There's something that feels very gross to me in sort of like this characterization of like her mother being this like saint right so it's not just the woman scorned it's the indigenous woman scorned i don't know that part made me like a little bit uncomfortable but also i kind of hate also evil stepmother narratives in general (laughs) but anyway back onto levi yeah so i think that this was also the idea of levi being this like parasite who extracts value from the community and then like like literally kills it with the crystal meth and like it leads to all these murders I think taps into this imagery they found throughout the novel that is about parasites. Like she calls all the hockey girlfriends anglerfish. Then there's this parasitic mushroom that is a, a it ends up being a red herring, but like a very purposeful red herring. Um, so there's all this parasite imagery, and I think this is another example of this putting something at the center that we all have a sort of typical association with like parasite equals bad thing but it looks at this in a more complicated way like sometimes yeah like levi is the bad kind of parasite and well the hockey coach is a bad kind of parasite but like the anglerfish end up being awesome like they get her that jersey and they're really supportive and they are like their own independent thing that's part of a cycle that like lifts up some people but you know not in this like pernicious way yeah what were my thoughts on levi other than i was just like devastated 
<laughs> that it was him. Yeah, it just makes me sad, especially because so much of the novel is Donna's losing people, right? Like her losing her father, her losing her uncle, her losing her grandmother. And then it turns out her brother was evil the whole time. Yeah. And there's just something especially gross. I think I just really hate the turn of, oh, we wanted you to date Jamie so that you would, if we threatened his life, you would make meth for uh, us. Yeah. That just is like a very elaborate long game that is incredibly cruel. Right. Like you're literally like, there feels like something that's like prostituting about it. Right. I mean, they had to go out of their way to characterize Mike as a like long game kind of thinker, like a chess master kind of thing. No, you got to feel for Donna's. But that I think that's part of what this book does is, you know, her trying to find her community. And there's the intuitive one of her half-brother who's about her age. And she plays hockey with her and, and there's all that. But that's not her people. And she needs to, like, figure out who her people is. And there are lots of people in this book that support her. And she can grow from and learn from, including her uncle who, you know, passed before the start of the novel. I think also in thinking of these intersection of the world, I thought it was very interesting as they were trying to figure out like what makes this meth special. Yeah. They found out that it was actually like crossbreeding it with love. Yeah, yeah. The native medicine right. that is like meant to be like a love herbal blend. I, there's something that's interesting about that that I can't quite put my finger on. Yeah, like the intention of Travis to get people to fall in love with them, but it's like this. I mean, what is the difference between using an herb? in this like holistic medicine kind of way to inspire affection and uh, what he did. I mean, obviously putting it in math is bad, but like the, but the idea, (laughs) yeah. Like what, what, what is like mixing these two things that, that actually make it bad. The existence of the love herb feels dirty. What's interesting to me is there's a reason that people do meth. Yeah. I've never done meth. I had forgotten that meth existed until this book because because we are so in the middle of the whole like opioid crisis now that I forgot there was a meth crisis before we had an opioid crisis. And I also liked that they like referenced the beginning of the opioid crisis with Robin's injury yeah. in the hospital. Yeah. Um, and really naming that Western medicine doesn't know everything mm-hmm. and often does make mistakes that hurt people. Mm-hmm. I think then when they talk about, you know, why did Travis start doing meth? They talk about, well, there are certain like benefits of it. We gave it to the military back in the day. It was an actual medicine you could get over the counter that could make you feel good and more alert and fearless and brave. This idea that like Travis felt that he could convince Lily like of his love for her mm-hmm. in this way. Like you just like need to understand. It was like another way of trying to reach an understanding with her. That's interesting to me. Right. And I think this actually fits in with the earned knowledge bit. Like Travis is trying to skip steps and go straight to thinking he can use a substance like this responsibly. And clearly he can't. We haven't talked about Jamie yet, her love interest. Here's another reason I I like this book is that we've seen a number of these like perfect SO characters in the books that we've read in the past where the person just like has everything together and the broken protagonist the SO is just patient with them in all the exact right ways and is just perfect. It's like modeling this good boyfriend thing. And I feel like Jamie was kind of like that. Like he was just like perfectly responsible and receptive to all the right things. But like he's so flawed. And at the end, she actually comes to realize that all of this stuff is flawed and uh, is like, you need to go figure out yourself. I'm going to figure out myself. 
maybe we'll meet somewhere else. But like the fact that they didn't end up together, even though he was this like perfect boyfriend archetype that we've seen, I think was great. Yeah. I mean, he was a freaking mess. <laughs> yes. Yes. But you don't know that at the beginning. Like, it, <laughs> so Jamie's a hot mess. But I think what's interesting about him being a hot mess is so much of it is him not knowing who he is. And we don't ever actually get the answer to who Jamie is. Like, was he one of these Indian children that was adopted out? What tribe is he actually from? Where is he from? It's not even like FBI agent Ron Johnson or whatever his real name right. is. <laughs> where he, he knows. He's like, yeah, I'm from a tribe in Denver. I'm, I'm an FBI agent by night, but by day I teach high school science, even though, you know, I was just a chemistry major back in undergrad 20 years ago. And so I'm totally confident enough to do this. Yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> um, before we move past Ron, uh, the the super science teacher, I really loved the way that the elders interacted with him at the end of the novel, where they're like, who are you? And he starts saying, you know, FBI, this and that. And they're like, no, 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 no. What tribe? Who takes responsibility for you? And I think that was, like, really key to this whole novel. And that's part of Jamie's problem is, like, Donis has people who will take responsibility for her. And she feels that responsibility to them. And Jamie is this, like, lost soul just trying to play different parts through this undercover cop thing, playing secret secret squirrel <laughs> with everybody. Yeah, he needs to find the people that will take responsibility for him and that he can feel responsibility towards and he won't be ready for a kind of relationship until then. So, yeah, I really liked how it started off with this normal, perfect SO who's totally understanding and seems to have wisdom beyond his years and all that. And then ended up being just a hot mess in all the ways that were thematically relevant for him to be a hot mess. Because it's like the same things that she was struggling with the entire time. And then she's able to diagnose it in him of like, you need to figure out who your people are. Because otherwise you're always going to get in too deep. Yeah, he's going to, like, buy into the ontologies given to him rather than, like, be able to understand and internalize his own. Okay, but real talk. Do you think someone could teach high school science on a daily basis if they spent 20 years of their life as an FBI agent? (laughs) I mean, it seems like he was involved with the practice meth lab. So maybe he's had some. I don't know. I know the the answer is I I don't think so. Because there's a lot of skills outside of chemistry that he would need to figure out really fast. So I don't know. Yeah, I just was what curious your opinion as an actual high school teacher. Because I was like, I feel like this book is communicating that it's just very easy to like jump in and become a high school teacher. Yeah, it also seems like Uncle David wasn't necessarily the best record keeper. Because he, he had a secret organization for everything. He wrote secret language in his notes. So, like, picking up his suitcase curriculum might not have been the easiest thing to do. Yeah, especially his organization. All of his things were, like, thumbed by the periodic table for you to find things. Yeah. Everything's in a secret cupboard. (laughs) Right, his cabinet of curiosities. (laughs) Secret organization. Yeah, so I think that's probably making it even more of a Black Diamond teaching situation. Ron was just, I I just loved everything about Ron. I just thought this was, like, crazy. (laughs) This is amazing. Yeah, like, is Ron the moral center of this book? 
So the, actually, this is another thing I was thinking about um, as I was reading slash listening to it is uh, I think that Donis is a really interesting first person narrator because her process is a moral center kind of process. Like she is humble in all the right ways. She's willing to grow in all the right ways. And so even though she makes mistakes and she does things that aren't necessarily good, you trust her in these like deep ways. So I, re- I really liked her as a moral center. And then Ron is just like... <laughs> He is always sort of right and mature about things, but I don't know. Any more thoughts on Ron as the wise, in a book filled with wise elders? Elders. Ron is a special kind of competent. Yep. Just that I don't think I could ever teach high school chemistry, like ever, (laughs) if I had to. All right. So I have a quick question for you. You are a contemporary exactly with Donis. Any nostalgia references to culture and things like that that you found i really loved when she had a blackberry and she's like i just got a new blackberry and everyone's like but you didn't get the razor (laughs) like the motorola razor was like a big deal especially the pink one and so yeah it is embarrassing that she got a blackberry and not a razor yeah that's post-college for me i can't believe that razor was higher status than blackberry i think blackberry just feels like i don't know like adulty like razors were just like looked cool that was right after like the sidekick T-Mobile Sidekick was right before that. I, of course, had none of these phones because I did not get a phone until I was like a senior in high school, which was circa like 2006. They, they all got me beat here. But I do remember what a big deal it was for those of us, those people who are not me and who don't just get quarters from their parents to call home on a payphone. Were there any music references or? Uh, I think Lily's a big fan of Amy Winehouse, oh. which felt very appropriate. Man, that's cool. What a, what a time to be in high school. You really know, lucked out. Right? Yeah. I was recently at a happy hour um, with some coworkers, and one of them was like pretending that he was in his 30s because he's like 22. Oh, geez. And he was like, yeah, man, like, I just like love Linkin Park. And oh, I was, my like, God. Is that what you think our generation <laughs> is? We're just always listening to Linkin Park. <laughs> like, I wouldn't even choose that as our cultural touchstone, but maybe it is. Yeah. I guess in the end, it doesn't really matter. In the end, it doesn't even matter. I did also, the other cultural thing that I liked in the book was the whole use thing, the UP oh, thing. Yeah. yeah, what was up I with really that? I really love these weird cultural things in the US. It's like yins in Pittsburgh. They're just like things, it's like y'all in the South. There's just a lot of things, and I don't know why you of all of the words, or like you guys is like the big one that people are really creative with, but it just makes me lull. All right, I want to try something new. My students have been preparing for paper two exams in the IB, and these are really similar to AP questions. The idea behind these kinds of literature essays is that you're asked a question that's like a big kind of like wisdom type question, and then you have to try to find the wisdom in a certain story that you read throughout the year and answer the question using the book to answer the question. And it's never really framed like that in high school. Like, we just think about it in terms of, like, a formula where you create a thesis statement based on the question and, like, reword the things, and it's it's pretty boring. But now that we're old and this isn't a testing situation, I was thinking maybe we could return to questions like this and see if finding the wisdom in a book is any more fun than it was in high school. I mean, let's hope. We did ask for wisdom before this podcast started. Yeah. And... I will just have to think back on the wisdom I also gained in my childhood from Linkin Park as a band (laughs) in order to inform this. Yeah. Okay. So here's a question pulled at random 
from an IB bank. Literature is often about crossing boundaries, both physically and mentally. In what ways and to what extent does the crossing of boundaries contribute to two or three of the works you've studied? So let's think about that in terms of this book, and if it makes sense to bring in other books, we will. Is this like where you get extra credit for additional ones? Like, I can get a three on the AP test if I just talk about this book, but I could get a five if I talk about another book? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly like that, yeah. Okay. (laughs) I mean, the most literal physical boundary, if we're going to go physical, is there's an island with a ferry. There's an island with a ferry, and that island is really significant in the novel. It's a place of, like, where knowledge is extracted and found, and this is where they're hidden, right? They're hidden on that island? Is that mm-hmm. true? Yeah, where, where when she gets kidnapped, they're in a cave on that island. Yeah. That doesn't get GPS. Right. It's, so it's, like, off the, off the grid. Yeah, that's a really significant... Okay, so let's talk about that. In what ways is that island's location and the crossing of the boundary over a ferry significant to the themes in this novel? Like, in what ways does that produce wisdom? Yeah, I think there's two big physical boundaries. That's the the first one is the island. And the other one is the Canadian border is a big thing, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, what is native land and what is not native land becomes a legal designation at the end that is really important. Mm -hmm. As well as the reason that Lily doesn't end up being enrolled in her tribe is because her grandfather, is it, was native but from the Canadian side. Right, right. And so it doesn't count. Yeah. And then also you can like buy all the meth ingredients in Canada. Right. So these like weird geographic distinctions that then impose an identity on the characters. And so there are these like physical external forces, like external to the individual anyway, that are geographic boundaries that impact identity. And so much of this book is about identity. So it's like it asks a question about the relationship between localities and identity and like to what extent is that relationship right valid and i think that this book like it does with everything else gives us two answers because in some ways like they are deeply committed to that land like part of the thing that she's going to do at the end is go to school to do medicine and particularly indigenous medicine and look at the holistic side of things which will require her to have a deep understanding of the flora of, of that island for example so in some ways like her identity is linked to that land specifically but then there are these like legal definitions um, and boundaries that need to be crossed or that can't be crossed like Lily's with the the Canadian side thing so yeah, they like makes this a more complex issue. Yeah, or the tribal boundaries with her rape. Like there yes, are just exactly these legal definitions that end up defining you far more than you think that they will. Right. And so you can like individually explore the land and like link your identity to the land in the way that she has in understanding the flora and understanding the different ways that her her heritage is linked to that land. But also there are these like external forces that tell stories about that land and create these borders and boundaries that are pernicious, that that hurt her ultimately. Yeah, I think it, it frames the question really interesting. So it's it's not an easy answer. Yeah, if I were writing an essay on this, I would I would basically say something like that. I'd say like Yeah. yeah. To what extent? To the extent that like it's an individual pursuit and not a externally coercive. I don't know. Yeah, I mean but there's also like the question of like the passing of boundaries dependent on people can pass different boundaries depending on different parts of their identity like mm-hmm. there's a whole section on right like her aunt will never send her husband like over the canadian border because he is darker skinned mm-hmm. and so that is just like asking for trouble yeah and so there is this idea also like physical boundaries can also 
be made even like more permanent depending on what your identity markers are. Yeah. And everyone gets different physical boundaries. They're not just actually like in the ground, like whether or not you can pass is different individual by individual. Yeah. And again, like in some ways that's true. And in some ways that's not true. Like in terms of the, like who can be prosecuted for her rape and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I think the answer is rich white men can go anywhere. (laughs) Yes. There are no physical boundaries for rich white men, is the learning I have from this book. Yes, they can cross the boundaries and uh, be totally fine. And in fact, use the crossing of those boundaries to their to their benefit. It's not just that they're fine. They are even more advantaged by crossing the boundaries. So if we were to think about other physical boundaries in the same way, I think that in the other books we've read, they've been more simple. Um, like not as nuanced as this one where it hits it from a bunch of different sides. Like, you know, going to the house in the Cerulean Sea is obviously crossing a boundary. But like that was very, there's paradise. This other place is not paradise. Well, and also just a lot of the things are very separate, like concrete separate worlds. Or like when I think about like Ray Bearer, there's the different Mm -hmm. areas of the larger kingdom where Kathleen, the Irish woman is from. And those feel very concrete. And I think a lot of times in things like fantasy or YA, though you have like, I'm America and now I'm going to Japan. Yeah. Right. And I think this is like an instance of like, these are two places that are so commingled, the US and the Indian culture. There is not a perfect way to untangle right. them. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think, really thematically resonant to the rest of the book of this like idea of social fabric and that you can't decouple these things because they exist. Like, Donis is proof that all these different identities and all these different boundaries exist in one person. And so they can't be disentangled or decoupled because they are necessarily tangled in individuals. And that is messy. Yeah, like in the secret language that her right. mom and uncle have, which exactly. is like French plus Italian plus English plus gibberish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, okay, this is this is off topic again, but we never find out why Jamie was an amazing pairs figure skater, right? <laughs> and speaks setting French us up for a prequel. Spanish. Setting us up for Tell a Jamie me what prequel. Happened. Yeah, I want it to be going for like a junior pairs title. I like want this to be a figure skating book because I loved figure skating books when I was little. And there were Silver Blades, if anyone's read them. They were great. They were like, you know, how all the little girls read horse books. I read ice skating books. Every day is a school day. Miss opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And now we can give it a go with mental boundaries. So I don't know. I don't know if this is going to lead anywhere, but there was the mental boundary with her and hockey. She is not permitted to play hockey anymore from a real physical issue that she's having with her shoulder and nerve damage and everything like that. But she can't help but cross that boundary back into the hockey world. Like it's just pulling her and she does it. So like there's this mental block that she has around not being able to cross that border from not hockey player to like audience anglerfish to player on the ice. Yeah, from not being in her tribe to choosing to become part of it. Yes. And so she she like needs to be able to move through that boundary and step onto the ice. But yeah, and then has a hard time not doing it. I mean, there's the mental boundary of just like the way that she thinks about her own membership in the tribal community where there's a gatekeeper organization that is going to say yes or no based on all these different things. And so it's like a mental block for her to be able to say like, yes, I'm part of this community or no, I'm definitively not. And so this, uh, there is this like boundary that needs to be crossed and she navigates it throughout the book. 
I think the other mental boundary that is coming up is the secret squirrel stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Being undercover. What's fake, what's real? Yeah, she's Donis and she's also secret squirrel. And this is like a mental boundary. She's in between the entire time. She's part of the external world that is invading her community and trying to root out the uh, the evil inside it. And then she's also part of the community that is trying to see the good and all that. And so this is a, a deep mental boundary. Which is another part of this book I liked. You know, we talked last time when we were doing the Truly Devious series about the genre of detective fiction where it localizes blame, then that blame is exiled from the community and you return to um, a state of paradise. And in this one, they, one, were not able to really localize blame because it was a whole network of people. And all of them pretty much get away with it. Like, they go off and play hockey in different places. They can't be prosecuted because they were on native land when they did things. And it, it sort of showed the impotence of the detective fiction genre to deal with meaningfully systemic issues. And they call it out in the same way that they do in Truly Devious, the fourth one, where it's like, with Ron and Jamie, it's like, you're coming in here, but then you're going to leave. Yeah, exactly. All right, do we close it out? What are we reading next? Well, Melissa, I've been pretty homesick for San Francisco recently. You know, Aww. we've been we've been stuck in Milan with all the travel restrictions and everything. So I heard about this book called Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe. What do you think about that? Have you heard of anything? I mean, uh, it's a story of love and duty set in San Francisco's Chinatown during the Red Scare. This sounds great. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's do that. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and were produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe. See you then. By Angeline Ah, yes, we're reading The Firekeeper's Daughter. We're reading Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bully. Angeline Bully. We're reading Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bully. Angeline! I can't say it. <laughs> Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Madelinda Lowe. By Melinda Lowe. And I feel like Jimmy was kind of like that. <laughs> I know his name's Jamie. <laughs> yeah, you probably even know that Jimmy's called Johnny. <laughs> no, Jamie. <laughs>